episode two of the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, I guess your host, and I'm joined by, as usual, Rachel Sass. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Yeah. It's going pretty well. Yeah. yeah. You guys sheltering? We are sheltering as much as possible. Yeah. Gotta keep our six feet distance from everyone right now. It's everybody else. Exactly. Yeah, everybody else is scary. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, toilet paper, you got to have it. <laughs> Need more, apparently. Yes. I don't have enough. I don't have 25 well, cases of toilet paper. Can, can we all just agree that everything in, mod- in moderation is appropriate? Yes. Yeah. I think if we can agree on that point, like society will be in a better place. Definitely. Definitely agree. <laughs> Well, this episode, we're going to be talking about trusts and uh, what they are. I guess what they're not, too, by definition. Once you say what they are, it's also what they're not. Well, let me lead in with just one slight teaser, I suppose, which is just to put off anybody who thinks like, oh, this is just a, it's a boring topic I know everything about. That may be true on both accounts. However, um, even though... Trusts are very popular and you see them everywhere and they're used frequently. My experience has been they're actually not that well understood, at least on a, on a very, sometimes on a very basic level, but also on a very technical level. And that is true of people who are in the legal profession and people who are outside the legal profession. Hopefully this will help shed some light, pull back the curtain a little bit on trusts, make them understandable. And if not, I'm going to blame someone other than myself or you. That's what I'm going to So just to lay a, a roadmap here, first we're going to talk about the history of trusts, where these things come from, why do we have them. Then we'll talk about trusts in Arizona specifically, because that's where we practice, that's what we know. Uh, Arizona's law is based on the Uniform Trust Code, which is been adopted by the vast majority of states. So I I think most of the things that we're going to talk about are similar in most states. Then we'll talk about revocable trusts specifically, and then we'll polish it off by talking somewhat generally, but we'll talk about irrevocable trusts. I cannot promise we'll cover every single trust that is out there. There are many different kinds, and there will be many podcasting opportunities to talk about the other (laughs) kinds. So don't you worry. All right. I know, I know you you had a concerned look on your face, but I, we're going to get there. I know there's about 20 different acronyms out there, there and, and I need to know them all. Yeah, there, <laughs> there are many acronyms in the trust world, um, very few of which we're going to talk about right now. Historically speaking, trusts are a product of English law. That's really the, the basis of them. And that's why we have them in the U.S., because our legal system by and large, is based on English law. We have a little bit of an amalgamation of laws because um, the land that is encompassed by the current United States was not always just English territory. Uh, Louisiana is more based on French law, continental European law. We adopt some Spanish law, property relationships, especially in the Southwest. But by and large, our legal system is based on English law, otherwise known as the common law system, and trusts come from that. And trust really came out of medieval England, just so 
that it makes a lot of sense that we're still doing the same thing as we used to do in mid- medieval England. But they were trying to solve for a particular problem, and that was how do you allow another person to hold on to real estate, specifically real estate, and uh, benefit another party? There were a couple of reasons for this. One, not, not well, I, you can't say that this is the sole reason, but, but one of the, the drivers or popularizing forces behind this were people going on crusades. And of course, they were leaving the island and they had property in some cases and they needed somebody who would be a steward over the property, uh, but not take it. And so they came up with what were called uses. And they weren't called trusts yet. Trusts kind of came later, but they were called uses. And the whole idea with a use was that one person would grant basically the legal titles of property, say real estate, to another person, and then they would retain in themselves the right to benefit from the property. There were a couple of historical reasons that people started doing that. One was that in the feudal system, being the landowner was kind of a detriment because now you were the person who had to pay all of the dependency taxes to the royal classes of people out there. And so therefore, if you didn't want to have to bear that burden, you didn't want to actually hold the land in your name. You wanted to have the use of the land, but you didn't want to hold the title to the land. And so they would do that. Additionally, in medieval England, it was illegal for religious organizations to own title to property. And also you had clergy in medieval English churches that had taken vows of poverty. So they couldn't own title to property. Otherwise, they would like be breaking their vow. So they oftentimes would have these use relationships set up so the title would be held, say, in, in the person who's trying to donate it to the church. And then the church would get the beneficial interest, for lack of a better term, in there's a, there's a specific Latin term that I won't uh, <laughs> regale you with, but the beneficial interest in the property. So the church could act, you know, they could get money from the property or uh, clergy could kind of have the use of the property, but they wouldn't be holding title, therefore not technically breaking their vow of poverty. And then there were there were crimes in medieval England. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> crimes existed where there are people, there are crimes. But the punishment for some of these crimes was you would lose title to property. So the workaround, and this was kind of a, a creditor protection play too, was you would put it into a use and then if you didn't own the title to the, the property, you weren't subject to losing it if you had committed one of these crimes or your creditors couldn't attack your use interest. Some of that was because this arrangement was not actually something that was in uh, English, say, law, courts of law, um, didn't really recognize these. And so what happened was people would be in these use relationship, you know, some unscrupulous person would just take the title to the, to the land and like abscond with it or take title to the property and then abscond with it or run off with it. And so people would be petitioning the crown to fix it. And the, the crown, the king would uh, typically appoint a chancellor who was oftentimes a clergy member to deal with all these claims. And so they created a court, court of chancery to deal with all of these claims. And so now you have all these claims kind of like tug at the heartstring claims that come before a clergy member who would come up with some remedy that was equitable, that was not available in any other court. 
And so it started to de- they started to develop kind of this body of law in the Chancery Courts that, in essence, made these uses uh, legal or, or enforceable. There was a short period of time in the f- mid-1500s where England, for, for all intents and purposes, banned uses, but they didn't ban the uses for every single possibility. So it, it only applied to, as I understood, it only applied to real estate. It didn't apply to like personal property. You could, you could have an arrangement that was, would be called like a use on a use. So you'd have like a, uh, you know, say I would give property to you, Rachel, and I would take the use and then I would take my use interest and I would give it to a third party. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and kind of like create these, these multi-level use arrangements that didn't really fall under the quote-unquote statute of uses, which was mm-hmm. concocted to get rid of uses. And out of that, so the chancery courts were still kind of dealing with these these arrangements that didn't exist or that weren't outlawed. Out of that came trusts, and trusts kind of were a product of that era. If you fast forward, say, 150, 200 years, uh, the U.S., or America becomes an independent country. I don't know if England thought it was an independent <laughs> country at the time, but you know, we definitely thought we were an independent country. We, we for the most part, and the, and the colonies for the most part, just adopted English law. And so when they did that, they adopted all of the common law that had been created in these courts of chancery that included trust. Not every, not every state was included. It wasn't true in every single state or, or, or the original colonies. Some um, treated these arrangements slightly different than others. Some didn't have them for a while. Some got them later. But by and large, they adopted this law, and, and we had trust. That was how we got trust. Hmm. And so now it's fairly common that states have robust trust laws. You know, we're not just relying on court cases anymore. Most states have taken the common law and then moved it into legislative law mm-hmm. and created statutes and we have this whole body of law that yes. governs trust but it really comes from these old 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 english uses that in some ways were meant to help criminals in some ways help <laughs> clergy uh members of the clergy to uh to become wealthy even though they've taken vows of poverty and all these sort of <laughs> unscrupulous things that's the history of where trusts come from that's not necessarily what they're used for now but that's that's the framework from which we operate now still, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. To be honest. It's interesting. Yeah. It's kind of, we've kind of filled in the gap since then we and have, yeah. made it so that it's more for, you know, planning out your legacy and not just making sure your, your properties are going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit beyond I'm leaving town. I need somebody to take care exactly. of this for me. And if you think about it, it's hundreds of years older than our constitution. So I think in the, in the U.S. we think yeah. of like, what's the old, what's the old grand law? It's the constitution. And it's really revered. It's like, that is, that is the law, right? That's like the, the real first law. I don't know that lawyers think of it that way, but you know, in, in lay circles, that seems to be the, the way that the constitution is viewed. But the constitution is like a baby compared to most <laughs> of the legal principles that we operate under, including trust. If we narrow down the focus a little bit down to Arizona specifically, 
as as a little part of this tapestry, <laughs> then maybe maybe we can talk about that and flesh out like what does Arizona do specifically? Yeah, yeah, and you know Arizona it's, it's definitely a bit different from the days of the Crusades. We've we've evolved. We've evolved. A little. <laughs> we've evolved. Yeah. We've got different requirements now. This may be news to anybody not in Arizona, <laughs> but it is true. Yeah, so I mean, in, in Arizona, if you want to create a trust, and we're just going to talk right now about a trust in general, kind of what those basic requirements are. First of all, you have to have someone to create the trust. I mean, that's kind of the first step right there, and that person's going to be usually called a settlor. So we like to call that person. And our settler, they've got to have an intent to create the trust. They actually have to want to do it. They have to have capacity. So they have to understand that they're creating a trust. And we need a beneficiary. We need someone to give some property to. And in addition to having a beneficiary, we also need a trustee. And now our trustee, we have to have someone different from a beneficiary and trustee. It can't be one and the same person. If we're going to have a trustee and also be a beneficiary, then we need another beneficiary. We have to have more than one. Is that like now or just in general? That is in general because we want to make sure that uh, the trustee has some duties. And if they only kind of have a duty to themselves and they're only going to take care of the property for themselves, they don't really have a lot of work to do. So we want to make sure that our trustee has some work to do for some other beneficiaries of this trust. Right. So it could be like somebody who's a beneficiary, say, in the future. Like they're going to come, even if they're going to come after the trustee who could be the first beneficiary, after that person passes away, there could be another person in the future who will know at that point who that person is. If that's the case, then there's more than one beneficiary. Correct. Yep. So if we've got grandchildren coming along in the future, we've got more kids in the future, that would work for that situation. And now another thing, and it's also good to point out that a beneficiary can be a charity, of course, we love to give to charity, can also be a pet. You know, people love their pets. And you know, if you've got a tortoise that's going to live a really long time, you've got some beautiful horses, or you just love your dog or your cat that much, that can be a beneficiary as well. Arizona actually allows that. We won't get too much into that today because it's its own separate topic, but that can be a person for your trust. Do not tell my dog. (laughs) and so now another thing you need obviously for a trust is going to be property you got to put something into this trust so that it can pass along to your beneficiary someday and there's a few different rules on what that property can be it can't be anything illegal we can't do anything against public policy so if you're going to be putting say cocaine methamphetamine eh, that's not a good idea that's going to be a legal property it's we're not going to be wanting to pass that down, so that's not going to be okay. But your house, totally okay. If you want to put uh, tangible property in there, you know, like your your antiques in your house, your artwork, that's completely fine, and that can go into your trust. What about the broken down furniture that all four of my children have jumped on? Absolutely. That can go into That can go in your trust. It has nominal value. It may have nominal value, but they may treasure that very <laughs> much. That yeah. sentimental value is really what goes all the way. I can only disputes. hope. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> so that's pretty much your, your basic requirements uh, for an Arizona trust. There's not too much to it there. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, in, its in its essence, as you're describing it, it is a relationship between parties to property. So like if you think of if you think of a house and 
what goes in, what interests exist in owning a house. There are actually a lot of different legal property interests that go into owning, owning the house. Every lawyer who's gone to law school will shudder to think of a bundle of sticks or some <laughs> yes. other strange analogy that a property law professor has come up with. But that's really true that there are lots of different, you can kind of divide down property rights into little bitty pieces. And so if you own a house, you have legal title to the house because your name is on the deed and you have the right to sell the house. You have the right to rent the house and your signature as the owner has to go on the purchase agreement and, and the transfer deed and it has to go into the lease agreement, etc. Nobody else's signature is authoritative. So you have that legal right. And then you also have the right to occupy the residence uh, and you can occupy any part of the residence. You can, de- you can decide who gets to occupy any other portion of the residence or all of the residence. That's up to you. You also have the right to benefit if you do lease the house. You get to collect the proceeds, not somebody else, because you own that right. And you also get to collect the proceeds if you sell the house. And you also get to collect the proceeds if you leverage up the house and take out an equity line of credit because you own that property right. And so what trusts do is a very kind of technical, geeky, legal matter is they take the legal ownership of property and they divide it off of all the beneficial property rights, like the right to the income if you rent it or the right to the proceeds if you sell the property. And they give the legal rights to the trustee. And they give the beneficial rights to the beneficiary. And so once you've done that, the beneficiary doesn't own the legal rights and the trustee doesn't own the beneficial rights, unless they're the same person. Which gets to your point of if you only have literally one trustee and one beneficiary, no other beneficiary, and they're the same person, you actually haven't divided these legal rights because they're held by the same person. It's like, exactly, it's right pocket, left pocket. You haven't (laughs) changed anything. So you have to introduce other beneficiaries, even if they're only going to come into play in the future. Otherwise, you've done nothing to the property title and the trust is just a relationship to this property title. And that I think is a, it's an important point because it deals, it, it deals with how you put property into the trust. It deals with how the, the property that's in the trust is managed. It deals with the relationship of the players. And um, it's actually a point that a lot of people kind of miss, but it's, it's a critical point. And so oftentimes we talk about um, the trust owning something or, you know, you put, you know, put the house in the trust and that's a fair way to think about it as like a bucket, but as a very technical matter, it's not a bucket at all. It's mm-hmm. not a thing. It's just a division of property interests among parties. Now it's not helped to that for tax purposes and a lot of times in courts and kind of for titling purposes with banks, etc. We talk about trust as things like an entity, like a corporation, but they're just not. That's not what they are. Yep. And they never were. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how many times you say that they are. They really are not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in the end, they really are not. So trusts come in two main varieties. You can correct me if I'm wrong, by the way. If you think that I'm wrong, if there's a third <laughs> variety. Um, and maybe somebody will come up with one, but there are trusts that are revocable by the settlor of the trust, the person who created the trust. And then there are trusts that are not revocable or irrevocable by the settlor of the trust. And it's this very firm black and white dividing line in the world of trust. 
very like there's you are only one or the other mm-hmm. uh, or you're only part one or part of the other. It's never like a mix. You know, it's either it's either red or blue. It's not purple. Exactly. Exactly. And with, with the revocable trust, like you said, it, the, the key word there is revocable. Our settler can change it at any time. They decide next week that they want to switch out their beneficiaries. They can do so. If they want to completely change the document from head to toe, they can do that with a revocable trust. And so it provides a lot more flexibility um, when you create a revocable trust. And they're actually pretty popular, Brad, wouldn't you say? I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Predominantly popular. Yeah, it's it's there because of that flexibility, because um, it's easy to, you know, manage the assets during your lifetime when you've got a revocable trust and you could change at any time if one of your kids, you know, just really made you mad the other day, you can go ahead and change that trust. And then, you know, a week from now, they cooled off and everything's good in the family, you can change it right back again. So revocable trust is really great. And, you know, I I like to think of the revocable trust as kind of like your star player in, you know, if we're talking about a movie, that's going to be your lead actor in our estate plan. Your revocable trust is the main document that we want to look at. It kind of controls how your pro, it controls pretty much how all of your property is going to be distributed um, upon an individual individual's death. Of course, there's other very important documents in an estate plan. Um, you know, most estate plans will include a will, a last will and testament. They will include powers of attorney, including a financial one, a healthcare power of attorney. There is a living will that talks kind of about your healthcare directives. And, um, you know, those, those are very, very important documents to have. But the trust, I feel like, is going to be your, your, your star lead actor. Um, everyone's going to look at it. And the reason why we want to keep your trust as, you know, your, your lead actor in your estate plan is because of that fact that it's, it's easy to change. And because your trustee, like you said, Brent, they hold the legal title to the property. They get to manage the property. And so because they get to do that, your trust is flexible. If anything should happen later on in your life, for example, um, if you happen to have a bad illness, you're in a coma. Unfortunately, Alzheimer's and dementia is really, you know, popular nowadays. It's very common. I don't know if it's popular. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> common. very common, very yeah. common. And so your trust kind of can work a little bit with all of those uh, scenarios that may happen later in life. Yeah, it's um, it's like the elixir to a lot of those problems. I, well, it's not the elixir on like a health level, but it's it can be an elixir on a financial level. And there's kind of two components to that. One is that because the trustee has the legal title, like you were saying, then if you're not the trustee, someone else steps into your shoes. And the law in most places, including Arizona, is that a trust never fails because it doesn't have a trustee. It will always have a trustee. You can always go down to court and ask the judge in the probate division, the court, or whatever other division is handling these matters, and they will appoint a trustee. So you, you the trust doesn't just go away because you lose a trustee. So you're always going to have something in that role uh, or somebody in that role. And they can manage the legal title for you, even if you are incapacitated. Because when you're incapacitated, you don't lose your beneficial rights. You can still receive payments on your behalf. You know, maybe the money's not going to come to you directly into your bank account, but the trustee can make the payments for you. 
the other component is that when uh, when we kind of have our choosing, then in the trust document itself or the trust agreement, we list out who the successors are going to be so that the set lore is not surprised by who the next trustee is while they're at least while they're alive. And so it's the person that they select who then is stepping into their shoes and managing everything that the trustee owns, which the usual intent is basically everything. And so uh, if something happens to the set lore, then the next trustee steps in and they start managing everything almost immediately. And it's all private and there's usually not any court intervention or intervention by anybody else. It just kind of happens on its own by the terms of the trust. Yeah, I think that's, it's, you know, that's one of the key factors to a revocable trust is that you have that incapacity planning built into the trust. And, you know, I know it's, 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 I think it's important to point out, you know, a lot of people think I've got powers of attorney that should do it, right? I'm taken care of. I don't need an extra document. I don't need a trust. But I would say, I, I would, I would tell a different story to those people. Um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in having a trust. And I think, you know, powers of attorney are great. They work during your lifetime. If anything should happen to you, your your agent in that document should be able to step in. But a lot of companies don't like to deal with agents with the power of attorney. They like to deal with a trustee. Um, you know, Brent, you and I have seen in our practice that a lot of title companies um, don't really prefer to deal with an agent. They prefer to deal with a trustee of a trust. Um, they just it gives them a little bit more of authority. I feel like, and they feel more secure interacting with a trustee over an agent. We've seen it with banks before, and so I feel like overall the trustee, you know, you you want to avoid ever having a conservatorship, like you said, that court intervention in case of incapacity later down the road. And the trustee being able to have, like you said, having the successors already listed out, you can have someone quickly step in should anything happen to you later in life. Yeah. And I think that, well, I think the crux there that you're pointing out um, is that if, you know, say a bank decides they're not going to accept a power of attorney, you're dead in the water with the bank. Exactly. There's no getting around it. And oftentimes the bank will tell you, well, you have to go to court, get somebody appointed, you know, open up a court proceeding, get somebody appointed who can come back with court authority to handle this account, which is the opposite of what the plan was meant to do, right? Like you would do a power of attorney because you don't want someone to have to run down to court. Anybody can run down to court. Somebody who doesn't have a power of attorney can run down to court and open up a proceeding for an incapacitated person as long as there's some interest there. So that there's nothing special in that. It's just, it's the opposite of what you're trying to do when you actually sign documents. So when, when you have the documents and you still have to do the court proceeding, that's a failure in the planning, which we just, in my experience, I just haven't seen that failure happen with trust. It, it almost exclusively happens with no planning at all, uh, or with a power of attorney or with say documents that leave property at someone's death outright to say a minor or outright to an incapacitated person. So it's uh it's an issue that's avoidable, but you have to do the planning up front to avoid it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in addition to incapacity planning, you know, I, th- I think that's definitely the, the number one importance of having a trust. Um, the second one, and I think this is kind of the more popular opinion of trust is that they're great because they avoid probate. And a lot of people do not like probate. No, they don't. It's no, they don't. just got a bad connotation to that word. I don't know, I just don't know why. It's... It, well, it is worse <laughs> in some states. 
we we're kind of fortunate we have a fairly informal pr- process for probate by and large, but other states are um, harder to handle. That's we'll true. That. That's true. It can get pretty costly in some of our neighboring states yes. around Arizona. Yeah. But I mean, so probate, um, you know, at, at its simplest terms, what probate is, is it's the distribution of property upon someone's passing. If they die without a will, you would have to go through probate to distribute their property uh, most of the time. And if they've got a will, you would also have to typically go through probate to distribute the property. And what it is, is the court just supervises the distribution of property. So you're filing papers with the court. The court makes sure that the creditors are given their chance to speak up if they have any claims. And then it just makes sure that everyone in the right order is getting paid what they're owed under the estate if there's a will, things like that. So probate, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of paperwork. You got to go down to court. If you don't like running down to the courthouse sometimes, then maybe probate not, might not be the best choice. So, you know, having a trust, it avoids probate. And the reason it does that is going back to what Brent said earlier is that the set lore does not own the legal title to the property anymore. The trustee of the revocable trust owns the property. So when a set lore passes away, they don't have the property that needs to be go through probate. Instead, it'll just pass directly through the trust that'll go through the beneficiaries. Yeah, and typically the revocable trust, then it looks like most people think a will would look. You know, that you know, the expectation you think of like uh, you know, all the movies that you've ever seen about people dying and then reading the will, which I've never done. Oh gosh, that's I don't know. That's, that's so Hollywood. I don't know that that actually happens. I'm sure someone <laughs> will tell me that it does, but I've never seen it actually happen. Um, you know, you're sitting around the table and somebody reads the will and I leave this to so-and-so and and I leave this to this other person and you go down the list. The revocable trust has terms in it that are basically that. You know, it says, when the settlor dies, this is what you do with the trust property. And then it lists out what you're going to do with it. Just like you would ordinarily expect the will to do. The, The other point I was thinking about when you're talking about probate is the level of supervision the level of court supervision can can vary so like in Arizona we have our informal proceedings which is still a court proceeding but it's basically it's like court proceedings by correspondence in essence because you just file documents uh, and then there's a there's a administrative person at the courthouse who deals with the thing that you filed it's not the judge directly and then we have formal proceedings which does include a judge some states have uh, what they call unsupervised probate, which is more like our informal probate, or they might have supervised probate, which is more like our formal probate, where you go before a judge. And then there's many other variations across the many states and territories of the United States, because we're not all uniform in the way that we do it. But I'd say by and large, there's at least some form of like an informal process or a formal process in most states. It's just like the planning. If you're trying to avoid probate, you're probably trying to avoid a formal probate. And so that if you actually have to do a probate, because say something was, some property was left not titled in the name of the trustee, then you want to make sure that it was, that you can do it in a way that's informal and has the least amount of court supervision necessary. Sometimes court supervision is useful because somebody's doing something improper and you need the court to intervene. But for the mundane things, it's just more costly to have the court supervise what's going on. There's a question that I get with some frequency. I can't say it's all the time, but it's with some frequency. And, and that is, well, when I put things in this trust, can my creditors get at the assets in the trust? 
and I have to break the news to people. It's very sad <laughs> news that their revocable trust does not protect them from creditor claims, but it doesn't mean that there is no creditor procedure. Like when somebody dies and they own a revocable trust, like in a typical probate, there's a very set procedure for how you deal with creditor claims against the estate. It's almost like a bankruptcy where creditors have these time these time periods where they have to come in and make claims on the estate. And if they don't make claims within the right time period, they're like out of luck forever. Just like a creditor in a bankruptcy typically has set time limits where you have to come in and make a claim against the person going bankrupt. Otherwise, you ain't getting paid, right? And it's the probates are the same way. And Arizona has a process that kind of models, takes the probate process and it sort of flips it into the trust side of things. And it tries to mirror those procedures, although it's not it's not quite as crystal clear. The statutes aren't quite written as mere images of each other. They sort of reference each other. To the extent that there's a process that creditors technically have to go through to get paid when, say, a settlor of a revocable trust dies, then it does, in that, in that sense, create creditor protection because there's the possibility that a creditor would not go through the process and therefore doesn't get paid. It's sort of like a, no, you don't get it, but if you die... Uh, there's this process people have to go through and maybe, maybe, maybe you'll have a creditor who won't make a claim and therefore you don't have to pay them in the end. The vast majority of the trusts are of the description that you just gave, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, then the other side of the planet of trusts are your irrevocable trusts. And really what it means is that the set lore cannot revoke the trust or get rid of the trust and using the power to revoke and amend are kind of coterminous so like if you can revoke it you can amend it so oftentimes with the uh, revocable trust the settlor gives up the ability to revoke the trust and take the property back from the trustee or amend the trust agreement directly or the settlor dies or the person who had the ability to revoke the trust dies so now nobody can revoke the trust and it becomes irrevocable and so ignoring kind of that second piece that I just described of when somebody dies and now it becomes irrevocable, usually irre irrevocable trusts that are made during a lifetime or inter vivos are intended to be irrevocable. Um, some states say that trusts are irrevocable unless you say otherwise. Some states go the opposite direction, like Arizona that says they're revocable unless you say otherwise. At least in Arizona, you have to intend to have an irrevocable trust. There are not... Functionally, there aren't any differences between the two. Like, that's really the main distinction. There are some tax differences that are kind of probably too in the weeds for this conversation. But usually, if you're going to have an irrevocable trust, the reason that you're going to have it is because it's there to hold assets for some kind of protective purpose. And that's a very broad spectrum of what that could be. So I'll give you a couple examples. If you have a beneficiary who needs public assistance, then oftentimes they will be disqualified from receiving public assistance if they own property outright. Mm -hmm. But if the property was put into a trust for them, either by somebody else or they put it in a trust for themselves that's irrevocable and the trust has the right kind of terms, they can kind of exclude the trust assets 
when they're trying to figure out if they can qualify for public benefits that actually are tested for your resources, means tested, it's called. In addition, sometimes the settlor will decide that I want to give something to this beneficiary. It's oftentimes a family member, but not always, but we'll just assume it's a family member. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, I want to give property to this beneficiary, but they're either a minor or they just don't have the wherewithal to handle this property. So they will put that property into an irrevocable trust that the beneficiary doesn't have full access to and the trustee is going to manage for the beneficiary. And then the beneficiary's creditors under the laws of most states can't access the beneficiary's interest in the trust. So the trust assets are off limits to the beneficiary's creditors. And then the assets that are in the trust, usually so long as enough time has passed, are protected from the settlor's creditors. So sort of this little creditor play or credit protection play plus you're trying to um, tie the hands of the beneficiary yeah. in a certain way, you know, <laughs> give, you know, give them something, but not give them all of it. Um, and then sometimes there are tax benefits, usually on the uh, estate gift and generation skipping transfer tax side of things, um, where you can use the trust to hold assets and then protect those assets from those taxes when say the settlor dies or when beneficiaries die and as a general matter, those are 40% taxes. And so the more you can get into a trust that's protected from paying this 40% tax, the better off the wealth that's in that trust is going to be. Mm-hmm. Because if you're paying this 40% tax at every single gener- uh, generation, all of a sudden, uh, the pot of money starts to dwindle quite quickly. Yes, And a lot of it goes to the government. And in my experience, most people doing that planning do not want to give money to the government. <laughs> That's like the last charity yes. on the list of charities that they want to give money to. Um, well, I think we've I think we've covered that pretty well. That's trust that's a, in a nutshell. That is a, that is a yeah. That is a nutshell conversation on trust. Probably more information than most people will ever want to know about trust. <laughs> uh, but believe it or not, it's not exhaustive of that topic. Exactly. There is. We could go on for hours couldn't if we, we wanted to, Brett. Yes, couldn't we? Let's not. <laughs> but we certainly could. Everyone thanks you. <laughs> well, thank you, Rachel. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, thank you, Brent.